Let me ask you to open up with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus and chapter 10. As we continue working our way verse by verse through this book, uh, in this particular season, we're working our way through chapters 1 through 15. Our, our goal is to see Israel brought out of Egypt and over through the Red Sea to the other side. And so that's where we're headed over the next few weeks and months until we return back to the New Testament book of Romans. Recent days, we've been studying the ten plagues. This morning, we're coming to the eighth plague in Exodus chapter 10. Uh, Every year, it seems like we hear of one nation or another being seriously threatened by a locust invasion. You say, I don't hear that every year. That's because we live in the wrong part of the world to hear of it every year. But internationally, that is a constant headline, and it's especially a constant headline for Africa. Let me read you just the beginning of one CNN report from the year 2013. It says this, Billions of locusts, everywhere the eye can see, eating most everything in sight. That's the harsh reality affecting roughly half the island nation of Madagascar, infested by swarms of the bugs flying in sometimes mile-long packs. Run for 30 to 45 minutes, and you still might not be able to shake them. It's like you're in a movie. It's incredible, said Alexander Hune of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO, from the country's capital of Antananarivo. You don't see anything except locusts. You you turn around and there are locusts everywhere. Locust targets aren't people, but they do ravenously devour what people eat, directly in the form of crops and indirectly in the form of pasture land that livestock and other animals graze on. Without concerted and effective action, experts say the crisis could very easily prove deadly in a nation such as Madagascar, where the UN estimates more than two-thirds of residents lived in poverty even before this crisis. Doing nothing would mean this locust plague could spread across two-thirds of the island, which sits in the Indian Ocean off Africa's southeastern coast. Even after a lull in winter, they'd wake up in the spring in greater numbers, and without action, they will remain a devastating presence for a full decade, Hune said. So that's one article from 2013 of many I could have chosen from. I still remember the first time I watched uh, BBC's The Planet Earth series. I don't know if you've ever seen that series, Planet Earth. It's really astonishing. Um, That series, they caught on camera some of the most amazing sights and sounds of Planet Earth. But I don't think there was a scene in that series that was more staggering to me or more amazing to me than the locust invasion that they caught on film. When you see it, and words can't describe it, when, when you see it, the sheer numbers of the locust just take your breath away. In a matter of minutes, a field that looked alive with crops and flowers, in a matter of minutes, you see the, just the blackness of all these bugs come and they go, and it's completely transformed into a barren wasteland. In the 1920s and the 1930s, 
Locusts in Africa devastated an area of more than 5 million square miles, an area of land almost twice the size of the United States. Philip Ryken points to the year 1988, in which the Chicago Tribune reported that billions of locusts are moving across North Africa in the worst plague since 1954, blotting out the sun, settling on the land like a black, ravenous carpet to strip it clean of vegetation. In 2001, the Times in London reported on a swarm of locusts in which there were 10,000 locusts per 10 square feet. This morning we come to the eighth plague, which God brought upon the ancient nation of Egypt because this Pharaoh and the people of Egypt refused to let God's people go. And this plague was very, very severe. Let's begin reading what happened in Exodus 10, verse 1, and we'll stop at times and make observations along the way. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Stop there. First, we see that the Lord reminded Moses of his sovereign purpose. The Lord reminded Moses of of his sovereign purpose. This, This has been a constant theme in these passages, and it is a constant theme in the Bible as a whole. God's sovereignty, his rule, his dominion, it's very clear. God says, I have hardened the heart of Pharaoh. I have hardened the hearts of Pharaoh's servants. This is a judicial hardening. God is giving these men over to the stubbornness of their hearts. Any moment in which any man or woman is not stubborn towards God is a moment of grace. We are born with stubborn, rebellious hearts, the Bible tells us. But Common grace at times causes people to have a melting of that hardness, a a, a willingness to not be as stubborn or rebellious towards God. And special grace comes through the gospel so that we bow the knee and surrender and give our lives to Christ. But here, God is removing even common grace from the hearts of these men. These men are being given over to their natural arrogance and their pride. God is letting Pharaoh and his servants be fully in their flesh so that he may be just in the judgment he's about to bring. And his judgment, he says, is going to fall in such a way that his name will be feared and revered for generations to come. God tells Moses that this is a spectacular judgment that's about to come. It's it's terrible, but it's spectacular And the ultimate goal, God says, is that through this just but severe judgment that is coming, future generations will hear him and know that he is the true God. And Mount Hermon, what are we doing this morning? Many, many, many generations after this plague, we're hearing of it to know that the God of of Moses, the God of Israel, 
the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true God. Pick up in verse 3. Verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. And then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that... Excuse me, that Egypt is ruined. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Well, here we see a second observation, namely that Pharaoh sought to negotiate with God. Pharaoh sought to negotiate with God. Pharaoh tells Moses and Aaron under pressure, from his advisors saying, look, Pharaoh, don't you see Egypt is ruined? Let them go. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and he says, all right, you can go. But he can't just stop there. If he had stopped there and let them go, the plagues would have stopped. But instead he said, but which ones are to go? He seems to be wanting to find a compromise, an agreement in which he can save face while capitulating to Moses. After the hellstorm of the seventh plague that devastated this country, Pharaoh is not in a good bargaining position. But he seems to hope that maybe by just by letting the men and the men only go, maybe that would suffice. Maybe if the women and children stay behind and he lets the men go, they can go hold their feast and then they can come back. And that way he gets to keep Israel as slaves in Egypt. But Moses' answer to Pharaoh was like a punch in the gut. We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters. We will go with our flocks and our herds for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Pharaoh, if we have a pet dog, he's coming with us. We're leaving no one behind. We're leaving the country. We are God's. We are not yours. God is calling Pharaoh to an uncompromised surrender. There will be no compromises here, Pharaoh. You must be willing to submit completely to the true God on His terms. Man 
does not negotiate with God. And despite what the Egyptians believed, Pharaoh was just a man. Pharaoh becomes enraged. He refuses to grant full permission. He, he says the men can go, but no others. And so we come to verses 12 through 15. Look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Our third observation is this. This was a locust plague like none seen before. This was a locust plague like none seen before. And understand, Egypt was no stranger to locusts. In fact, it is common in Egypt in March and in April, in the spring of the year, for, for locusts to strike. As the days are getting warmer, the desert sands warm, and the locust eggs hatch in the ground. And the locusts travel whichever way the wind blows them. If the wind blows eastward from the desert into Egypt, the locusts come and wreak havoc in the crops of the field. A horde of locusts can stretch for miles, including not just millions, but actually billions of these insects, each one eating its own body weight in vegetation each day. Egypt's hope and prayer each year as they sacrificed to their gods was that the winds would blow towards the Sahara Desert and not towards Egypt. But this invasion of locusts was far worse than anything Egypt had known before or since. The sheer number was far more than typical. Our passage says the swarm settled over all the land of Egypt. It settled on the whole country of Egypt. You, you can see in those two different expressions that the writer Moses is doubly emphasizing how many locusts there were and that they covered the entire kingdom. There were so many, we're told, that the whole land was darkened. You couldn't see the sun because there were so many bugs. And when the plague was over, when all was said and done, not a green thing remained. The vegetation, the fruit were all destroyed. God wrecked the agriculture and the food supply of Egypt. We, we, we're such not an agricultural nation anymore. I mean, for us, you'd have to picture McDonald's gone, okay? Picture Walmart gone. Picture, I mean, everything that they depended on for their food was, was gone, except for whatever fish they perhaps could, kept, could catch from the Nile. So how does Pharaoh respond to this plague? Well, let's look at how Pharaoh responds in verse 16. Verse 16. 
Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin. Please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. Now our fourth observation is that Pharaoh seemed to repent of his sin. He seemed to repent of his sin yet again. Listen to these words, because we have not heard words this strong from the mouth of Pharaoh before. Pharaoh says, I have sinned against Yahweh, the Lord your God, and against you. Therefore, forgive my sin. Please, only this once, plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. This is Pharaoh brought very low. Remember, he was the most powerful man in the world at this time. And he is in complete desperation. He is, he is saying exactly what we would want him to say if he was truly repenting. He, he, he confesses sin. He, he prays for God to forgive him. He, and Moses goes and pleads, and God ends the plague. But there are a few reasons why we might begin to be suspicious about Pharaoh's repentance. First, we remember that he has claimed repentance before and then refused to let God's people go. So his past teaches us that we cannot trust his repentance. And second, and see if this sounds like your experience, it's not uncommon for people in dire circumstances to say what they think they need to say to God in order to get out of that bad situation only to turn back on their words when the circumstance changes. Maybe some of us in here have done that. Uh, our own experience tells us to be a bit suspicious of Pharaoh's words. Will he hold up what he has said when the locusts are gone? And then third, we can't help but note that Pharaoh doesn't actually mention any specifics. He says that he has sinned, but notice Pharaoh doesn't mention any particular sins. He, he doesn't say how he has sinned against God or against Moses and Aaron or against the people of Israel. Several times in the Bible, we see this mark of false repentance. False repentance tends to stay general and to stay away from specifics. Thomas Watson says this, he says, A wicked man acknowledges that he is a sinner in general. He confesses sin by wholesale. A wicked man says, Lord, I have sinned, but does not know what the sin is, or at least he does not remember. Whereas a true convert acknowledges his particular sins. As it is with a wounded man who comes to the surgeon and shows him all the wounds. Here I was cut in the head. Here I was shot in the arm. So a mournful sinner will confess the disorders of his soul to God. Watson's instruction to us is this. He says, by a diligent inspection into our hearts, we may find some particular sin indulged. Point to that sin with a tear. Church, when you repent, when you go before God on your own 
and you start confessing your sins to God, don't stay in the general. It's a mark of false repentance. Go to the specific. Confess those things that He's shown you that you've thought or said or done. I try and set an example in the way we pray from this pulpit. The problem is, in this pulpit, when I confess sin earlier in the service, in the prayer, I am speaking for a general group. So I can't get specific, right? I can't say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I said to Mary on Thursday, right? Because that doesn't apply to all of you. So don't take your cue from our general repentance that we pray here in church. When you're on your own at home before God and you're praying to Him, go to the specifics. Confess your individual sins to God. He will be pleased by that and it will have a wonderful, sanctifying, God-honoring effect on your life. Well, with those elements making us suspicious of Pharaoh's repentance, we should not be surprised by verse 20. You see verse 20? But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. This is our fifth point. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again. Now, God is a fountain of grace and mercy. God could have chosen in this moment to move graciously in Pharaoh's heart and to bring Pharaoh to true repentance. But but God's plan here is not actually centered around Pharaoh. God's plan here is is a a world-minded plan. He's doing something that's going to affect future generations, even a congregation of folks sitting in a little church in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina in the year 2015. God has more amazing judgments to display, more wonders to perform, but He's only going to perform them justly. And therefore, He holds back His grace from Pharaoh. Pharaoh is given over to his natural pride, his natural stubbornness, and therefore Pharaoh refuses to keep his word. He refuses to let the people go so that God will be just in what He does next. But we'll see what he does next tonight. Who was the Egyptian deity assaulted by this plague? By this plague of locusts. We've seen that each one of these plagues is an attack on the Egyptian gods. While there are many Egyptian gods being assaulted by each plague, I've been trying to show at least one particular Egyptian god for each plague that's being revealed as a fraud. Almost everyone agrees that the primary Egyptian god being exposed and dethroned by this plague is the Egyptian god Seth, sometimes called Seti. Seth or Seti. Seth was one of the most important Egyptian gods. He was worshipped at several temples throughout Egypt. He was served by a large priesthood. Seth was considered the protector of Re, the highest of all Egypt's gods. Seth was the god of the desert. He was the god of chaos and violence coming from the desert. And more than any other, Seth was considered by the Egyptians to be the god of the locusts. Supposedly, the locusts did his bidding, which is why Seth was a god to be appeased. If you wanted to keep the locusts away, you had to sacrifice to Seth. Seth was considered violent, strong, a god to be feared. Anger him and you would feel his wrath. And yet Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Moses, humiliates this God. 
Moses' God proves that Seth is a fraud. He's a, a false god. God tells Pharaoh exactly what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. The priest had their opportunity to go and to sacrifice to Seth and to say, don't let this happen. And yet, Moses' God proves triumphant. By the way, now that the goddess nuts in the seventh plague and the god Seth in the eighth plague have been successfully assaulted, there are only two chief gods in Egypt left that have not been the target of God's plagues. There is the loftiest god of Egypt himself, Re, sometimes called Ra, the sun god. And what's our ninth plague going to be? Darkness. And then there is the Pharaoh himself, who the people worshipped as the human incarnation of Ra on earth. And we're going to see his firstborn son killed in the tenth plague. God is revealing what he said he was revealing in these plagues, that the world would know, that generations would know, that he and he alone is the true God before whom we must worship, before whom we must give our allegiance. He is a God to be revered, a God to be feared, a God to be adored, a God to be trusted. He is the true God. What's the prophetic lesson of this passage? We've seen that the book of Revelation draws from the book of Exodus in explaining what's happening right now today in these last days. That there are plagues happening on this earth teaching us, waking us up about a climactic day of judgment that is coming. One plague that is particularly important in the book of Revelation drawn straight from our passage here is the plague of locusts. Turn with me to Revelation 9 for just a moment. Look with me at the end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 9. And here we will see what this locust plague in Egypt foreshadowed, which is now happening right now in our day. Um, I I need to warn you as we come to Revelation 9. This is perhaps one of the strangest passages in the entire Bible. But we're talking about locusts. That shouldn't surprise you. This is one of the strangest passages in the entire Bible. Let's begin in verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, 
And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. Now, there is far more in that passage than I have time or the will to explain this morning. Put simply, we'll summarize it this way. In these last days, a horde of demonic powers has been released into the world to torment those who have not been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The locust in the book of Exodus unleashed upon the people of Egypt, we're told in the book of Revelation, is a picture of how a horde of demonic powers has been unleashed in our day to torment those people who reject God and His gospel. This is mysterious, and I will not venture to say a whole lot about it. But Revelation 9 does seem to teach that unbelievers are under a spiritual attack by forces they do not see, leading them into a kind of soul torment. So, in our day, we tend to assume that every kind of torment, every kind of anguish that people experience, it, it must be psychological and they need therapy. Right? That's, that's our first inclination. Psychological and they go therapy. It, we forget that the body and the soul are connected. That these things are united together. The truth is, those who do not have the peace which Christ gives, they are under attack by spiritual forces who are seeking to make their inner lives chaotic. The devil wants to lead people into further confusion, further frustration, ultimately despair. Suicides happen far too frequently. Our first instinct is to assume some kind of mental illness. But in the Bible, we see that in these days, we're not to be surprised when we see people who are in inner torment because there are spiritual forces at work, mysterious things happening. And this is one judgment of God to warn us of how important it is to turn to Him and to trust His Savior and to warn us of a greater judgment to come. As we come closer and closer to the last day, we should not be surprised at how many people around us are hurting inwardly, psychologically, spiritually, with terrible anguish. Well, finally, we come to the eighth purpose of these plagues. The eighth purpose of these plagues. We've been noting with each plague ten reasons why God chose to do this, why God chose to bring these plagues upon Egypt. Here is our eighth reason. God sent these plagues to teach that our sins affect those under our authority. Our sins affect those under our authority. The fact is, Pharaoh is the leader of Egypt. And while the Egyptians themselves are guilty of sins great enough to deserve these judgments of God, and worse... There can be no doubt that the stubborn heart of Pharaoh is reaping consequences that are affecting not only him, but the nation that he rules over. This is a sobering truth that we've hit again and again and again in the study of these plagues. When we are in any position of authority or influence, our sins will affect those underneath our influence or authority. Our sins always have an effect beyond ourselves. When children see sinful patterns of behavior in their parents, it affects the children. The children often learn those patterns and imitate them. 
the attitudes and example of a husband or a father sets the tone for the rest of the family. When the husband or father is living in sin, he should not be surprised to see those same sins appear in the lives of his wife and children. Employers, managers, supervisors, the sin in you will affect the people under you. Pastors, deacons, ministry leaders in our church, the same is true here. In our own nation, we've seen the powerful and the influential move further and further into ungodliness. And the common American man is just a step behind, moving in the same direction. What is even more evident in our account here is that the consequences of our sins will often fall on those under our authority as well. Even as Christians, while we can celebrate and rejoice that our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, we still must acknowledge that our sins can have real and terrible consequences in this life. And those consequences can bring pain and hardship not only to us, but to people that we love, to people that we care for. Think about a man who is lazy at work. That man's laziness causes him to be fired. It isn't just he that suffers. It's his family that he's supporting. Think about a woman who cannot control her tongue. Her words hurt people. She she burns bridges. She creates tension with her tongue. And the rest of her family is left cut off from people they would otherwise know and love. Children, when you behave rudely, Or do things you ought not to do. It not only affects your name, but the name of your family. In recent years, we've seen in the headlines that one poor decision by one employee can bring tough consequences on entire companies. And certainly we recognize that when our politicians get it wrong, when they act unethically or selfishly in their policy making or policy enforcement, we all suffer. We all reap the consequences. On the last day, we will all have to stand before God on our own two feet. On the last day, we will not answer for anyone else's sins. We will only answer for our own. We will stand as individuals. And if we are Christians, we will be able to plead the wonderful blood of Christ. But until that day comes, know that your sins never just affect only you. And neither do their consequences. We ought to hate sin, not only for our own sake, because of what sin does to us, but we ought to hate sin because of what it does to those around us, those we love, those under our influence. And now, may we renew our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior for sinners, and resolve afresh to follow Him. It is only through Christ that we are saved from the ultimate consequences of our sins. It is only through Christ that we are given peace with God, that we go to heaven instead of hell. What does submission to God look like for us? It looks like bowing down to the wonderful Savior who gave His life to bring us to heaven. What a Savior He is and what a love He has. And if there's anyone in this room that has not trusted Christ, I pray that you would. Let's pray together.